We're in Romans chapter 15. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. And happy 4th of July weekend. I guess it's the weekend for loud, sudden noises. And, and, it, and it's strangely quiet this morning, right after last week. Worship team jumping out and running all the... I miss the jungle, though. We, that could have been permanent installation. I would have been okay with that. But with all the craziness we had last week, I hope you had a chance to say hi to visitors. Leanne was here in town. She was in town for a wedding. Leanne, for those of you who don't know, was a worship leader uh, for several years while she was studying at Newman. She went back home to Orlando after she graduated to marry her childhood sweetheart, and they lead worship down at Calvary, Orlando, and help oversee the young adults ministry. Kevin and Aaron were here, uh, along with Laz and Miles, Lazarus's first visit to Wichita. Aaron grew up at Calvary, went to the Bible College in California, met Kevin. Uh, they came back after college to serve here for several years, and then two years ago we prayed and sent them out to Calvary Chapel Tracy in the Bay Area of Northern California, where they actually serve under Pastor Alejandro, who was a summer intern here seven years ago. It's crazy what God does. But it, was, but it was fun to have them in church on Sunday. When we send brothers and sisters out, or, or in Leanne's case, when we send them back, um, we, 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 we always lay hands on them, we always pray, and we always say, you'll always be family. We'll always be family. And it's, and it's fun when we get those mini family reunions. Ever occur to you that that's what heaven is going to be, though? A gigantic family reunion with all of the people you've ever served with, ever worshipped alongside. They're all going to be there because we really will always be family. One of the neat things that Kevin and Aaron get to do at Calvary Chapel Tracy is a summer of service, like we do a lot of years, most years, here with our youth and young adults. And because Kevin was here last week, he left some gaps in teaching and discipleship back there with, with their youth, and so he asked, would I be willing to spend some time with them over Zoom? I said, sure, because I love that. And it was great. They've got a neat group of Jesus-loving teenagers. And it was a neat conversation, but my favorite part came at the, at the very end. It gets to the end of the hour or 90 minutes, whatever we, we had, but it gets to the end of the time. And I said, okay, one last question. Anybody, Bueller, Bueller, anyone. And, and one of the young women, and she, she gets this smile on her face, and she leans towards the camera, and she said, testimony, 30 seconds, Go. And some of you are laughing because I've done that to you. <laughs> it was fantastic. Um, because, because a bunch of times when Kevin was here as an intern, I, I would do that to him and, and the other guys that he was serving with. It's, which, and it, by the way, it's a really good exercise. You've got 30 seconds to tell someone who Jesus is and, and what he means to you and what he's done in your life. Who were you before Jesus? And what happened when you met Jesus? And what's different now that you're walking with Jesus? 30 seconds, go. We live, we live in a digital age with TikToks and memes. And, and 30 seconds is actually a long time to have somebody's attention now, if you think about it. I mean, I mean what, 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 are, what are reels? Less than 30 seconds. Vines. They don't have vines anymore. Whatever vines are... <laughs> Whatever vines are today, vines were six seconds, and that was too long, so we don't have them anymore. The point is, you, you, you can't count on having more than 30 seconds if you even get that. How will you use the opportunity if God brings it to you? It's worth thinking about so you'll be ready. Because, spoiler alert, I wasn't ready. 
I'm the guy who used to spring that on other people, but when somebody sprang it on me, I was da da I, w- I didn't know I was so out of practice, but I was. I, I, I think I managed 90 seconds, something along the lines of, of what I shared a few weeks ago. At which point she, she says, okay, that makes sense. How did you get to Kansas? She had a follow-up question. <laughs> How did you get to Kansas? Because she's in Northern California, so she probably can't comprehend what it is to you know, live in flyover country, those, those square states in the middle. How did you get to Kansas? I looked at her and I said, Jesus. And then Alejandro said, okay, we're out of time. They have something. And he ended the Zoom call, which was kind of a bummer because that's the real answer. How we got here, Jesus. And some of you know the story. And if you don't, I'm going to share part of it before we're done. But as we turn back to Romans 15 this morning, Paul's going to remind us today, that's not an uncommon story. How do you end up here? How did, what, how did you end up going there, Jesus? That's a really not unusual answer, and it's absolutely Paul's answer. From the very beginning of his ministry, back in Acts chapter 9, to the end of his life, and we're going to glimpse the end of his life this morning as well, the answer again and again, and again and again, was Jesus. Romans 15 is not the end of the letter. There's another chapter to go after this one, you probably noticed. But as we pick up this morning in verse 14, it's the beginning of the end. He's he's wrapped up the substance of what he has to share, and now he's getting ready to sign off. He's begun his initial descent toward his signature. And, And even without reading ahead, you got that impression last week, didn't you? For three and a half chapters, Paul's been going and going and going on one single theme. Worship God with your life. Romans 12, 1, and everything that follows, hey, in light of who God is, considering everything that God has done, present yourself a living sacrifice, a living, breathing, praise offering to God. To do that, you're going to have to stop thinking like the world. You're going to have to start thinking like God, and that's what he's been telling us how to do. That's what he's been talking about how we can attain the mind of Christ and so worship God with everything we are. And as we wrapped up last week, Paul was wrapping up as well. And he was telling us, he was reminding us, everything that I've just said, you don't have to do in your own strength, which is good, because we can't do it in our own strength. But we get to do it. We get to worship the Lord with our lives in the grace and the power he supplies. Verse 13, that was was Paul's prayer for us. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that 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 you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In believing we're filled with the Holy Spirit, in continuing to believe, continuing to call upon the name of the Lord, we're being filled and we're worshipers as we walk in the Spirit. Feels like a close. Feels like a conclusion. And it is. Because having, having prayed that, Paul is now wrapping up. He said what he has to say. And he knows it's been a lot. So before he signs his name, he's going to make sure that everyone who's reading this is feeling okay about it. Because remember, he's writing to a church that he's never been to and people he's mostly never met. 
So as he pivots to his conclusion, he says, hey, I hope you don't take anything that I've said the wrong way. I myself, verse 14, I'm confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. I've never met most of you. I've heard good things about you. You're mature believers, full of grace and truth. You've got this. You're ready for whatever comes at you. But, Paul continues, even so, verse 15, nevertheless, I've written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you, because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul's English teacher didn't have a red marker. He never learned about run-on sentences. But what he's saying is, hey, I've written to you. I've encouraged you to make your lives a worship offering. You need to understand, if I'm coming on a little strong at certain points, that's me making my life a worship offering. This is me ministering in the gifts that God has given me. This is the calling that, that God has placed upon my life. I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. That's you guys. I'm just, I'm just doing what God has called me to do because that's how I worship my Lord. It's, this is my service. This is my obedience to, 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 to my God, to your God, to our God, to the king of, of, of everything. This is how I worship Jesus. And it's exciting that I get to do that, Paul continues. I've got reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God. It's, it's exciting to serve the Lord and teach his word and encourage his body and bring the gospel to the lost. But what I do, he, he, he's, he's taken everything that he's, he's spoken of and exhorted them in and he's first personing it. What I do, he says, verse 18, I do the same way I'm telling you to do what I'm telling you to do. What I do, I do only through the power of the Holy Spirit. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things, verse 18, which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I stumbled that first service too, Illyricum, I've fully preached the gospel of Christ. In the power of the Holy Spirit, I've gone all over declaring the name of Jesus. Illyricum, if you look on the map, is here. Which, interestingly, that's modern-day, what, Slavonia, Belgrade, Kosovo, um, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Albania, Croatia. That's all, interesting, we don't have any record of when Paul went there. But we know that Paul is saying, hey, I, I, I started down here and I've shared the gospel all the, well, not down here, all the way up here. This is next. I've been to Athens. I've been to Corinth. I've been to Ephesus. Rome is in my sights. It's a lot of real estate, Paul. Why'd you move around so much? Why not, you know, put down roots somewhere? Verse 20, he answers that question. He says, I've made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. Paul was a gifted pastor-teacher, 
But he wasn't called to pastor a church. He was called as an apostle and an evangelist to share the gospel and plant churches. God sent Paul to bring the gospel to places that the gospel hadn't gone, places that no one had gone before. That was his ministry. And that's why, he says to the Romans in verse 22, at least it's a big part of why we've never met most of us. For this reason, I've also been much hindered from coming to you, from coming to Rome. I've wanted to for, for years now. But God had other plans, and obedience to God took me other places. But that's about to come to an end. Verse 23, now no longer having a place in these parts, he's writing in Corinth, apparently his time there is ending, and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I might enjoy your company for a while. My plan is to go to Spain, and when I go to Spain, I'm going to stop on my way. I'm going to see you, spend some time with you, worship with you, fellowship with you. I'll teach if you want me to teach. And, and I'm hoping to have a chance to share my heart for missions so that maybe you'll partner with me. Maybe you'll support me in my ministry. And, 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 of, and of course, we do things like that, right? From Mother's Day to Father's Day every year, we, we partner with Embrace and, and we give them an opportunity to share their vision for, for uh, ministering to the unborn in Wichita. By the way, if you haven't brought your baby bottle back, it's not too late because they're still sitting locked up in the office. We haven't taken them over there yet. And, and, and really, any time during the year that you want to support Embrace, that it's on your heart to come alongside them, we're happy to facilitate that. Tenth Hour Project, they were here Easter weekend. The young adults from that discipleship program, uh, actually, they conducted our Good Friday service. And since then, they, they split into two. Half went to Uganda, half went to Peru. And it's a privilege to come alongside them in their, in their dual mission of discipleship of young people and also outreach to the outermost parts. Um, they're building a... New, their program is growing. They're building a new dormitory in their home base in New Mexico. We're praying about helping them with that. Um, we're also sending Ethan uh, to 10th Hour Project. Their next class starts in August. By God's grace, he's going to be a part of it. And if you're interested in knowing more about that and knowing how to pray for him, um, he's rattling around here somewhere. So <laughs> tag him in the halls. But before I can come to you, Paul says, verse 25... Before, before I can get there, i got to go somewhere else. I have to be obedient to something else first. I have to go to Jerusalem, verse 25, to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia to Acacia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. We know that there's famine from time to time in the region throughout the book of Acts. And besides the, the, the hardship that famine would cause, believers in Jerusalem during this time were increasingly persecuted because they're believers for Jesus Christ and the epicenter of Judaism. So many believers would have difficulty buying or selling. In some cases, their property was seized. Some would be killed for their faith, leaving widows and orphans. So churches that were originally sent out, planted by people sent out from Jerusalem, are now sending resources back to Jerusalem. It pleased them, verse 27. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. They sent us the good news of Jesus that gave us eternal life. The least we can do in the outermost parts is send them money to help them in this life, 
So that's what I'm doing next, Paul is saying. I'm going to take the money from places that I've been, I'm going to bring it back to where I came from, and then I'm going to go out to where I'm headed to, which is you guys. When I perform this, verse 28, and sealed to them this fruit in Jerusalem, I shall go by way of you in Rome to Spain. And it didn't turn out that way even a little. When we continue our study of Paul's life back in Acts, because that's chronologically what's next when we finish Romans, we'll see that Paul went to Jerusalem. That happened, except when he gets there, he gets arrested. And over the next two years, he's brought in front of one authority after another. First, the Sanhedrin. The, the ruling council of, of the Jews. Then to Felix and Festus, who were governors of Judea. Felix, and, and then he was succeeded by Festus. Then to King Agrippa. Finally, Paul gets impatient, and he exercises his right as a Roman citizen, and he appeals to Caesar. He says, put me in front of Nero. So when Paul finally reaches Rome two or three years later, he doesn't arrive as a missionary on his way to Spain. He arrives as a prisoner on his way to the courthouse. And ultimately, he spends the next two years under house arrest in Rome. And we'll talk about this in greater detail when we get there. But, but, but we know the broad strokes, right, most of us? Paul arrives in Rome, 60 AD, give or take. After two years, he's released and two, three, four years later, four at the most, he's imprisoned again and ultimately executed in the middle of 66 AD, probably on orders from Nero. But, but what happens in between? The, the, the dates are a little plus or minus, but, but from the time he's released, 62, give or take, until he's rearrested and thrown back in prison, 64, 65, 66, that's two to four years. What did Paul do with that time? Where did he go? Did he make it to Spain? We don't know. He could have. It was, it's enough time. He might have. And in 95 AD, Clement of Rome writes that he did. Clement of Rome writes in 95, so like 40 years later, that Paul went to the farthest limits of the West. If you look at the map... That would be the farthest limits of the West. So there's a very good possibility that he made it. By, by the time we get to the 4th century, you can find all kinds of authors saying, oh, of, of course he did. Cyril of Jerusalem and Jerome and Christostom all agree, oh, yes, he definitely went there. But see, we don't know if they had evidence or if they're just repeating what someone else said. We don't know for sure if Paul got to Spain. We know he didn't. We know for sure he didn't get there the way that he planned. And he might not have gotten there at all. But here's the thing. That's normal for Paul. He wrote the letter to the Romans in 57 AD. We're decently sure of that date. He got saved. This one's squishy, but let's say around 34 AD. Let's say shortly after the, the death of Jesus. So that's, what, 20, 25 years between getting saved and, and reading the letter that, writing the letter that we're reading? During that quarter century, not a whole lot went according to plan for Paul. Think about it. We first encounter Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. He's on his way to Damascus, breathing, breathing threats and murder, intending to drag believers out of the synagogues and take them bound back to Jerusalem. And if a few of them die on the way, well, that's just the cost of doing business. Except before he gets there, Jesus meets him on the road. He falls down. He's blinded. He's converted and when he's led 
to Jerusalem because he's still blinded. He doesn't beat the believers. He joins the believers. And he immediately begins preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was not his plan. What happens next? Well, having been told by Jesus on the road that he was the apostle to the Gentiles, the logical thing to do would be to go to Jerusalem because that's where all the other apostles were. Except Galatians 1.17, Paul says that he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He goes to Arabia instead. Why? Jesus. Jesus meets him again. Jesus calls him. For three years, Jesus teaches him in Arabia. When he's done there, Paul returns to Damascus, intending to pick up where he left off, except, still Acts 9, it doesn't go so well. The Jewish leadership in Damascus wants Paul dead. So he has to escape over the wall under the cover of darkness. He's lowered down in a basket. You know the story. And that's when he finally does end up in Jerusalem. We read that he's with the other apostles coming in and going out. But that doesn't work out so well because this time it's the Hellenists, the Jews who have adopted, adapted to, to Greek culture that take issue with Paul. So the church in Jerusalem has to again send him out, send him to safety. They send him to Tarsus where he grew up, where he was, where he was born. And Paul lives there for 10 years. Back to where he started, that couldn't be anywhere on Paul's radar. Couldn't be remotely part of his plan. But after 10 years, he's probably assuming, well, I guess this is the plan. And it was, until it wasn't. After almost 10 years, Barnabas comes to find him. He's like, oh, the Holy Spirit is moving. There's revival happening in Antioch. I need you. That's Acts 11. Paul, come with me. we we got to do ministry in Antioch. And God uses Paul wonderfully there. Until a year or so later, the Holy Spirit says at the top of Acts 13, hey, separate out to me Barnabas and Saul. Paul was still Saul at the time. And that becomes his first missionary journey. He leaves Antioch and goes to Galatia and, and, and so forth. And they have a neat way of discerning God's will when they should stay and when they should leave all through that missionary journey. When people throw rocks at their heads, that tells them it's time to leave. Because <laughs> that happened a lot. So after a year, they're back in Antioch, and I'm sure they're, okay, glad that's over. We can get back to ministry as usual, except that they barely have time to unpack when God calls them to the missions field again. And, and, and this is where we get probably the, the clearest example of what I'm talking about. Acts 16. Acts 16 is, is, is where it's on the screen. Paul wants to go to Asia. The Holy Spirit says no. They go to Mysia, try to go into Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit doesn't permit them. So they go to Troas, and Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia who says, don't stop in Troas, keep going. Let's, let's keep going to the map. So this is how it translates. This is where Paul is going. They've gone to Bithynia. Holy Spirit says, no, you can't. Or sorry, sorry, they've gone through Mysia. Paul says, hey, I want to go down to Asia, to Turkey. Holy Spirit says, no. Okay, how about up to Bithynia? Well, Holy Spirit says, no. Well, it doesn't make sense to go back the way we came. So they go forward to Troas. And the Holy Spirit gives them a vision that says, keep on going over to Macedonia. In, in, in one, one moment, in, in a handful of verses, Paul has a plan, and another plan, and another plan. And the Holy Spirit says, hey, how about my plan? Let's hit, let's hit pause on, on our review there, because I mean that really, really wasn't the goal. We're not trying to recap Paul's life so much as demonstrate 20 years of ministry, 30 if you count what's yet to come, 
Paul spends very little time doing what he thought he'd be doing in the places he thought he'd be doing it with the people he thought he'd be doing it with. Change is Paul's normal. And that's not unusual for Paul. It's not unusual for God. If we look at the lives of men and women that, that we, we, we say, yeah, they, they're used of God. They serve the Lord. The Lord uses them. Almost without exception, there are men and women whose lives are interrupted by God, whose lives are rerouted by God, who, whose lives are turned inside out and upside down and discombobulated by God. Men and women who are challenged by God, okay, do you want to do it your way? Or how about we try my way? Paul's an easy example, but so is every other apostle, if you think about it. Jesus taps him on the shoulder. He says, follow me. Every one of them, their lives were changed forever. I mean, okay, eternally, yes, but even in this world. Their lives in this world were, none of them, were remotely the same after Jesus called them to ministry, right? Old Testament. Show me an Old Testament hero. Show me your favorite Old Testament coloring book page. I'll show you someone whose life was interrupted. Abraham, called out of his father's house to a land that God would show him. Joseph, how many times did Joseph get turned around? You're in a hole, you're out of the hole, you're sold into slavery. You're serving. No, you're in prison. No, you're the prime minister. <laughs> Moses, when God calls him, he's living in exile in Midian after killing someone. David, David is out tending the sheep, except now you're anointed king, except you don't get to be king, you get to run for your life. But, but now you get to be king, except that you blow it and you fall into sin with Bathsheba, but then you repent and you're restored, but then your son is trying to kill you. <laughs> Elisha, plowing his parents' field, along comes this old guy who, who throws a smock on him and says, hey, you're a prophet now. Daniel is in Jerusalem, except that he's in exile, except that he's the prime minister, except that he's in the lion's den. Esther, hey, you're a queen. Just one problem, you're also under a death sentence because you're Jewish. <laughs> Nehemiah, you're the cupbearer to the king, except God is calling you to be a pioneer of, of the return. And I'm just, I'm just calling out the easy ones, the familiar ones. But do you, do you see the through line? Every one of those, those people had a crossroad. Some, some had several. They all had an interruption. But more than that, think about this. Every one of them was willing to be interrupted. Everyone was willing to set aside their plans, to, to lay down their privilege and follow the God, call of God on their lives. Ever think about what happens if they don't? If they don't cooperate with God's plans? If, if they don't allow God to interrupt their plans? If Abraham doesn't trust God, who's the father of Israel? If Joseph says, okay, I'm in a hole, I'm done, I'm in prison, I'm checking out, well, then who saves the nation from famine? If Moses checks out, who leaves the children of Israel out of Egypt? If David flakes out, who writes all the Psalms? If Nehemiah decides that he really likes the food in Babylon, who rebuilds the walls and the gates of Jerusalem? And I get there's an answer to those questions. I don't think that God's plans can be permanently knocked off course by any one person's disobedience. We just finished Isaiah on Wednesdays. Not this week, but next week we'll start Jeremiah. Isaiah 46.10, I'm God and there's none like me. 
declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Sort of the same thing that God told Job in the verses that Grayson was reading earlier. And we didn't coordinate that. God just did that. But in, in both, God says the same thing. I'm God and everything that I will, will come to pass. So I don't think that God's plans can be permanently knocked off course by one person's disobedience. But turn it around. What happens when we let our plans get knocked off course when we choose obedience? We get the privilege of being used of God. And we get to take the grace that he's placed in these cracked clay pots and pour it out for his glory if we choose to, if we choose him. That's what Paul did. That's what Paul did again and again. That's what Paul did going to Jerusalem. When we get back to Acts, we'll see Paul warned, don't go to Jerusalem three different times. On three separate occasions, Paul's warned, don't go to Jerusalem, it won't end well. And Paul says, yeah, I know. But he also knew that that was God's call on his life, God's plan for his life. And he chose to let God interrupt. He could have just skipped it. I mean, practically speaking, could have taken the offering from from Corinth and other places and, and given it to someone else and said, hey, take this to Jerusalem. The church in Ephesus Read, read Acts chapter 20. The church of Ephesus would have fallen all over themselves to do that. I think a lot of people would have been glad to do that. So Paul could have skipped Jerusalem instead of going east and then turning around and going west. He could have just gone straight to, to Spain with a stop in Rome on the way. But if he does, who shares the gospel with governors and kings? If Paul turns and goes west... Who ministers to residents of Rome for two years? Who writes, who writes the prison epistles? That Paul writes Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and the cover letter Philemon? That Paul writes when he's under house arrest? Who writes those? Do they get written? Do, do First and Second Timothy and Titus get written? That's, that's seven books of the Bible. That's more than a quarter of the books of the New Testament. Paul wanted to go to Spain. But it was more important that he go in obedience. He had ministry in mind. It was more important for him to pursue the ministry that God had for him. He had places that he wanted to be, but it was more important to be in the place that God had prepared for him. Those are biblical examples. There are modern examples, obviously. Hard to read a Christian biography, in fact, without coming across one, at least one, crossroads, one clear interruption, one divine occasion of choice. Hey, it's pursue your plan or it's follow God's plan. And sometimes the interruption is dramatic. Think, think Johnny Erickson Tata. Think Corey Tenboom. Corey Tenboom and her sister helping, helping Jews and others escape Nazi persecution during World War II. The war progresses, the threat continues, the threat extends to them. The Nazis are saying, okay, now we're not just killing the Jews, we're killing anybody helping the Jews and, and the other people that we're persecuting. But there's a choice, right? 
And in that moment of choice, God said, no, persevere. I've put you where I've put you for a reason. I've put you where you are to love people that no one else is loving. The Jews primarily, but also the mentally disabled. I've called you to love people that no one else is loving, to love people that others won't love. And they chose to follow God in that. Now, they didn't choose to be arrested and thrown into a concentration camp. That wasn't a choice. But what was a choice? Once they were there, it was a choice to not get bitter. It was a choice to worship. It was a choice to take a smuggled Bible and begin teaching people about Jesus. It was a choice to witness to guards. It was a choice to lead other prisoners to Christ. It was a choice to tell people again and again, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And how many, how many people were touched, not just by their direct ministry, but by the story, by the testimony that God is present and God is love and God's beauty cannot be quenched even by the most horrific evil darkness humanity is capable of. But none of that happens if she doesn't allow God to interrupt her life. Elizabeth Elliot began, began her ministry as a missionary, studied at Wheaton College to be a missionary. Mary Jim Elliot and, and their heart was to bring the gospel to unreached people groups. She wasn't planning on her husband being killed three days into the adventure by the people they were trying to love. And after that happened, I don't think she was planning on going back and living among the people who had killed her husband and Nate Saint and the others and loving them and leading them to Jesus. How many people, how many, how many lives influenced by that story and by the teaching ministry that God gave her when she returned from the jungle that was all about ministry born of suf- suffering, that was all about God never wastes pain, that was all about God won't protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. Because she knew. And everybody knew that she knew. Sometimes God's interruptions are dramatic. Sometimes, sometimes they, they're, they're off stage and almost unseen. Pastor Chuck used to tell the story about a woman who had on her heart to be a missionary to China. And one way to become a missionary to China was to become a nurse and you could get a visa to go to China as a nurse. So she went to nursing school and she graduated from nursing school. But when it came time to uh, uh, past the physical that her missions board required, she didn't, and I don't know why, but she was, she was not in, in good enough health that they felt comfortable sending her overseas. Instead of being crushed, instead of being bitter, instead of taking her stethoscope and her syringe and going home, she turned to a classmate and she said, okay, you go, and I'll support you. I'll get a job, and, and I'll pay for you to be a missionary in China. And the classmate went. And, and, and as this young woman progressed in her career, she got a raise. She was able to support two missionaries. She got a promotion. She was able to support four missionaries. She became the lead nurse, the, the director of nursing at, at a hospital. She was able to support, I think it was six missionaries. And everyone that they reached, every family that those missionaries touched, every house church that got established, is going to be credited to that woman who stayed stateside because of her health, all of that ministry in China will be credited to her account by God as if she did it herself. What a reminder to not give up, to not lose heart when God says, I know what you planned. It was a good plan. 
But I got something else, and it's better. By the way, I, I put that, that album case, I know it's, it's fuzzy, but I wanted to put that up to, there to remind me. If you haven't discovered Blue Letter Institute, you need to check it out. I know a lot of you do your, your studying on Blue Letter Bible, which is a fantastic website. Um, you can navigate to Blue Letter Institute through the website, or you can just type in study.bible, free Bible college online. And you can, you can read, you can listen, you can watch videos. Most of, most of the classes are multimedia, completely free. You can get credit through Lancaster Bible College. You can, if you do enough classes and you don't want college credit, you can get a certificate suitable for framing, or you can just get poured into study.bible. Lifetime worth of information there. But, but getting back to our study. How do we do this? As we wrap up, how do we remember to let God interrupt us? How do we be like these great men and women of faith who roll with the changes and stay available and, and remain pliable for God to use even as our plans are crumbling and, and, and crumpling around us? I think the answer is at the end of the passage. Romans 15, verse 30, I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I might be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I might come to you with joy by the will of God and be refreshed together with you all. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. That I might come to you with joy, verse 32, by the will of God. Pray for me, Paul says that I might do the things that I have in my heart to do with joy by the will of God. Paul had plans, and he doesn't apologize for it. Paul was not one to sit around idly waiting for burning bushes or, or, or spontaneous writing on walls. Paul wasn't afraid of making a mistake. He didn't, he didn't say, well, I'm afraid to do anything for God because I might do the wrong thing and then God will be mad. No, God, Paul was always asking, what's next? How can I be used of God to tell people about God for the glory of God? There's got to be something. What am I called to do? What am I gifted to do? What is my best understanding of what God has for me to do right now here today? But then Paul held it in an open hand. Then he prayed, and he asked others to pray. Do I have this right, God? God, if I have it right, open the door. Speed my journey. Make, 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 make my travel smooth. If I have it wrong, close the door. God, if I'm, if I'm right, confirm it. If I'm wrong, show me. If there's something better, redirect me. God, put me where you want to use me. Because that's where I know that you're going to meet me. That's where I know your strength and your peace is waiting for me. That's where I know, verse 32, your joy is going to overflow me. Paul planned his ways. The way we read in verse 28. Jerusalem, Rome, Spain. He planned his ways, and he doesn't apologize for it, and there's nothing wrong with it. But he also prayed the way he prays in verse 32. The things I, I do, I want to do for you according to your will and in your strength. And because he prayed the way that he prayed, God was able to direct his steps. And you know, so often, those, those God-ordained interruptions, those divine 
redirections to our plans. They, so often they come down to a point in time, a moment, a decision. My way, God's way. My way, my, my plan, his plan. I've seen it firsthand. September 2009, the pastor of this church walked into a board meeting and said, I'm divorcing my wife and I'm resigning as pastor, and he walked out. I did not know that at the time. I did not know that this church existed. I didn't know there was a Calvary in Wichita, let alone three. But the same week, God spoke to me and spoke to my wife separately, because by two or more witnesses is a thing established. He spoke to us separately and said, start wrapping up. I'm calling you out to a land that I'll show you. Went and talked to my pastor. We had a long-standing agreement, even before that, that if God called either one of us out, we would try to do a great transition because we had people leave that did not do great transitions. So we talked, we prayed, and, and, and we agreed that we'd both heard from the Lord, yes, that's what God wanted. We felt like he had confirmed, do a six-month transition and do it great. That was in September. In February, an earthquake hit Haiti. Some of you have heard parts of this story, but there's a part of it that I don't often share. In February, an earthquake hit Haiti. Our church had a team on the ground within 24 hours because starting in September 11th, we were, we were a disaster relief church. That was a, a focus of our ministry. So we had a team there, and, and they had two missions. One is, is establish a supply line over the mountains to the Dominican Republic, and the second was find an airport that we can fly supplies in from Miami. That was the first team. I was supposed to lead the second team. And the second team, our goal was to find a hospital, a clinic, some, some building still standing that could be a center of operations, that could be a base for medical, uh, for medical teams that would be coming. The night before we're supposed to leave, I get a phone call from my pastor. I say, what's up? He says, who else is going on the trip? I said, I'm not having this conversation. He said, no, seriously, who's, who's, who's your number two on the trip? I said, I can't hear you. <laughs> because I had a plan. And I had good reasons for my plan. I had more survival training than anyone else in the church. I had more medical training than anyone who was free to go at the time. So I said to my pastor, you're not keeping me back. I have a plan. And I got loud, explaining, insisting. One of three times I can remember losing my temper with my pastor. To his credit, he, I got loud, he got quiet. I got angry, he got patient. <laughs> he said, look, dude, we, we prayed, we sought the Lord, we heard from the Lord, we know that we did. We're supposed to do this together. And if you're going to go all renegade and go your own way and, and break away from the plan that we both agreed God had, then I don't know what to do, but you're not going to Haiti. <laughs> So I didn't go to Haiti, and I stayed back, and, and I spent the next 30, 60 days on the phone and online, which doing the very first thing that I did on staff. God kind of bookended my time there. I went on staff right after September 11th to coordinate that ministry. In the middle, I coordinated Katrina Relief. And, and, but see, here's the thing. It's not the end of the story. Two months later, the transition is up. Six months is over. I still don't know where I'm going. God hasn't showing us the land that he's calling us out to. So I made another plan. But I learned from the first one. I made another plan, and I said, God, is it Minnesota? 
is the reason you haven't shown me is because you've already shown me. Because I've got people that have asked me to plant a church there. Minneapolis is the biggest city in the country that doesn't have a Calvary. Am I asking you to repeat yourself, Lord? Is the answer right in front of me? So I prayed, God, if you don't show us something different, if you don't tell us otherwise, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to the Great Lakes Pastors Conference, and I'm going to ask Mike Fernandez, who you've met, and, and the other Minnesota guys, to lay hands on me and pray about a church in Minneapolis. God, that's what I'm going to do if you don't show me anything different. Two days before I left, Al James called. Al James, the interim pastor here who was shepherding the transition. And obviously the rest is history. And apparently I'm wearing the same shirt that I was wearing then. <laughs> but the hair's a different color. But here's the thing. How did PA get my name? And I didn't put this together for like three years. But, but here's what I finally learned. It's my last day on staff in New Jersey. And the last thing I do before I turn in my keys is I call everyone around the country that I was doing Haiti ministry with. And, and I told them, hey, I'm stepping off staff. No sin, no scandal, just God calling us out. But your new contact for all things Haiti is. One of the people that I called was a guy named Roger at Calvary Costa Mesa, big Calvary, the mothership. And he was not only coordinating Haiti, he was coordinating Calvary church planning and church accreditation. And I said, hey, you know, I'm stepping off in Haiti and everything. But, but by the way, do you know of anyone that's looking for a pastor? And he said, no, I think you just need to pray harder. And he hung up. <laughs> True story. Less than an hour later, and I didn't find this out for three years, less than an hour later, Pastor Al calls Roger Wing. He says, hey, I'm transitioning the church in Wichita. Good for you. So do you happen to know of any pastors? No, I think you need to pray harder. And he hung up on PA. <laughs> but then a few minutes later, Roger called Al back and said, there's this one guy. He's in New Jersey. He's really annoying. How did, but, but put it together. How did PA get my name? Roger. How did Roger get my name? Haiti. How did I end up coordinating Haiti and having anything to do with Roger at Costa Mesa? My pastor challenged me. My pastor got in my face over the phone, but in love, quietly got in my face and said, do you want to follow your plans or do you want to obey God? Are you willing to let God interrupt your program already in progress? And I'm really glad he did. Because he did, my family arrived in Kansas 13 years ago yesterday, July 1st, 2010, which was not my plan. Wichita was not my plan in any way, shape, or form. It was better than my plan because God's ways always are. The prayer that Paul prays at, at the end here somehow has escaped my notice over the years. I mean, I'm sure I've read it, but there are times that I'll open my Bible and, and I'll look for a prayer to pray. Praying prayers that people pray in Scripture is, is, is something that I like to do. And Psalms is, is, is my common destination, but, but a lot of times Paul in his epistles will just interrupt in the middle of a sentence and burst into prayer. So I go there too. But I, but I don't remember ever praying this, but I want to now as we close. I beg you, brethren, 
through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that we might strive together with each other in prayers to God. That we might be delivered from those who do not believe, those who resist God and oppose the gospel. And that our service for Wichita and Kansas may be acceptable to the saints. That we may come together day over day, week over week, with joy by the will of God and be refreshed as we worship and witness and minister together. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen.